0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. The
1: reading today is from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection.
0: Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we're gathered here, perhaps the most silent and reflective we've been all week, because the reality is even when we try to get still, there still are those voices that come from without telling us to Purchase more, achieve more, strive more, be more, do more, move things faster, and we run and climb, and we're exhausted. Even when we can get quiet, there's that voice from within that tells us that we need to prove other people wrong, or we need to prove our worth, or if they really knew the truth about me, they'd run. And so we're anxious. But right now, right here. Help us to see that no matter how different we are from one another, we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, none of us has it all together. Each of us is a beautiful mess. And at the same time, you see us in all our complexity and contradictions. You know us and you love us. And that love is demonstrated in its fullness in the personal work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we invite you now to teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed, that we'd actually receive the good work you want to do in our lives and reflect it out into this world. And so come, Lord Jesus, transform us and renew the face of the earth. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, Friday was a big day for me, friends. It was my 41st birthday, the big four one. Good times. And uh, you know Enneagram seven uh, Myers Briggs is ENFP. Strength finders, woo and maximizer, positivity, connectedness. You can imagine that I did not stay in bed all day for my 41st birthday. Started at sunrise with a great swim out in La Jolla, and one friend said, "What can I? What can I bring?" And I said, "Why don't you bring coffee? Well, coffee with an Irish twist to it. You know, let's, let's let's enjoy a good swim and a good coffee afterwards." And then we uh, went out for breakfast with all of our friends and. Ended up playing basketball with my son, Benjamin, and then Fortnite with Levi. I mean, we're not even at 11 a.m. yet at this point. And rode my bike down to Ocean Beach to the home where I grew up. We had this really nice lunch there. One of the most striking parts was uh, we're sitting there having lunch, and my mom started telling stories of me as a small child, of the day that I was born, the time that I was born. And I said, what home was I brought into from the hospital? And she said, it's just four blocks away from here. And I asked my sister, you want to go for a walk with me after lunch and we'll go see the house where I was brought into. So I have photos of this house, a very simple home in Ocean Beach that I was brought home to from the hospital. And I said, we've got to knock on the door and see who lives there now. So I met this guy named Greg who seemed very nice. Let me take photos of the ocean from the front porch. But through learning the story of my birth, I felt like I got to know my life a little more. It deepened the whole day. It moved from happiness, fun, and joy, which are all good things, into depth and meaning. And when Jesus, in this scripture, wants to talk about what life with God is like, he uses the metaphor of birth, something that has been taking place since the dawn of creation, something everyone would be familiar with. But he uses it in a way that adds a new layer, a new meaning that not only is it like being born, it's like being reborn. Now, I get it. Some of you right now, you hear the word reborn, born again Christian. You say, oh my gosh, this is one of those kind of churches. Honey, run. Meet me at the car. Because you've had experiences of people with different labels uh, that have put some sort of you know, guilt trip on you or some sort of really forceful pressure to you. And when you meet someone like that, maybe you should run. But I would say that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about a life that goes so deep and so bright and so beautiful and so profound that no matter how alive you feel right now, in comparison, it would be like being reborn. So let's examine this metaphor today and look at what is he inviting us to be reborn into? How do you get this sort of rebirth? And what's the result? First, what is he inviting us to be reborn into? One of the challenges of being a preacher is you often come back to the same scripture within a year or two and you're expected to say something entirely different. We preached on this just a year ago. So there's a different set of three points if you want to go back into the podcast. Today, where I want to put the needle on the record and focus on what, is it, what are you reborn into is on Trinity Sunday, we'll look at the life of the Trinity, The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as I said in the beginning, this is not something Christians sought to make up. This is a picture of God that was revealed and received throughout many generations. So, for example, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's baptized in the River Jordan, says Jesus comes out of the water and the voice of God the Father comes from the heaven while the Holy Spirit descends as in the form of a dove. And there you have a family portrait of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. After Jesus is crucified and resurrected, when he meets his friends on that hill in Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Christians throughout all time, our job is not to overwhelmingly explain the doctrine of the Trinity. Our role is to receive the doctrine of the Trinity and what it means for us. And here's at least two things that it means. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit never were created, always have been throughout eternity. Let that sink in for a second. Theologians use this beautiful Greek term, perichoresis. Choresis like choreography, and peri like the, the outside, the, the round part, the perimeter. Perichoresis. What it means is, when they're trying to describe what the three persons of the Trinity have been doing throughout all time, before there was time, what were they doing? Before there was creation, what were they doing? They were dancing around each other in a beautiful dance of rhythm and outpouring love. I want you to consider how different that is from the worldview of every other major world religion and philosophy. If you go back to other creation narratives of the time, the Enuma Elish in Mesopotamia says that there was this guard Marduk and this goddess Tiamat, and where did creation come from? They got into a fight, and Marduk won and scattered the entrails of Tiamat, and from that came the world. At the core of that narrative, what's at the core of the world? Violence. And when you take a narrative like that, it leads to war. War out there and war in here. Same with the Roman Empire. The story of the founding of Rome is one brother killing another brother and deciding where Rome should be placed. Violence. But not at the Christian narrative. At the heart of the Christian narrative when you peel everything else away from all creation, when you rewind the the video all the way back even before the beginning, there still was something going on. And it was creative, self-giving, dancing love at the very core of God. Scripture goes on to instruct us that we were created in the image and likeness of God. So on one hand, it addresses a major question. Why did God create the world? Many other philosophies will give you some sort of a picture of there's some sort of a deity, the divine being, that created the world because that God needed to be worshipped. That God needed to be told how great that God is so that God, like a king or queen, made subjects to be subject to them and worship them. That's why the world exists. But not Christianity. Christianity said God needed nothing. God was fully sufficient in God's self already. There was a party going on in the heavens from before time. So why did God create this world? Because the creative love was so good, it had to overflow and be shared outward. This is why, as scripture instructs us, we're created in the image and likeness of God. This is why you have that creative yearning within you. The human soul wants to create something. Whether it's music, or a community, or justice, or rights, or great food, or a good spreadsheet, whatever it is, you want to create deep down. This is why life feels so stifled when you try to create, but you can't. You're frustrated. You're paused. The core of the universe is creative, self-giving love. And you were created in that image and likeness which also tells you that you were created for community. I was talking to a friend who travels the world much more than I do, who also has more therapeutic, psychological credentials than I do, and he said, no matter where I travel, travels over 180 days a year, no matter where I travel, whatever culture, whatever language, I realize it's always the same. That person just wants to be known and loved. And so do you because you were created in the image and likeness of God who is known and loved. I was listening to Brene Brown the other day on this Oprah podcast and they had this uh, neurobiologist therapist on and he was talking about, um, he's like, it doesn't matter the treatment I give you as your therapist. If all you're going to do is see me one hour a week, but you have no other relationships or friendships in your life, no other connections in your life, you're just never going to get better. Because true healing happens in the context of good friendship and good relationship. He goes on to say that loneliness is a more efficient predictor of early death than cancer, obesity, and smoking. Relationships are that critical. When they go well, they are so beautiful. And when they go wrong, they are so tragically painful but they're critical. What do relationships look like in your life? Who are you connected to? What are the relationships in which you can grow, in which you can challenge somebody or be challenged? See, when relationships go well, like I'm hoping as society opens up, we have some really good summer concerts right here in the park. Now I realize that's contrived. It's usually a San Diego sunny afternoon and the, you know, the coolers are full of ice and beverages and frisbees are being thrown. It's, it's a picture though of people who don't even know each other coming together in joy. But when it goes wrong and you turn on your newsfeed and you read about Palestine and Israel, you, when you, when you open the New York Times yesterday and you see 67 photos of Palestinian children who have been killed in bombing raids, You say humanity has such potential for joy and connection, and such potential for destruction and pain. As we discovered nuclear power, we realized that power can power an entire city, or it can level one. And so as a church, we think and pray and act on a global level for peace, for connection, for joy, for harmony, and we take responsibility for every relationship in our lives. As we do, it not only transforms the world and makes a different society, it actually makes you and me more alive because we're living into the joy of the Trinity. We're living into the connection we were made for. Otherwise, we become a thirsty, hungry, needy, violent, isolated people. you're reborn into the joy, the connection, the creativity of the life of God. Now, how do you do that? Who brings about the birth? Think about this in real life. Who brings about the birth? Does the baby say, I think I'll be born now? I want to be born. I think I'll do it. No, you don't go and get born. Birth happens to you. The baby really doesn't do a thing, but stay alive. And even that, the baby has help with our medical system. It's all the mother. The baby is brought into the world through the mother's labor, through the mother's pain, through the mother's patience, through the mother's bleeding. All the weight for all those months, somebody else has suffered, somebody else has been burdened so that that new birth can take place. Don't you see how different Christianity is? You can't make yourself a Christian. You can't say, I want all these really groovy feelings and feeling connected to God, and so I'm going to say the right prayer or do the right things, and then I'll be a Christian. You become reborn because God has done something on your behalf you could never do for yourself. This is what Jesus is getting at in that cryptic part that Rita read so eloquently for us where Jesus said, just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that you may live. That's referencing a story in the Old Testament in Numbers 21 when the people of God were wandering and complaining and bitter and they had begun to get bit by these venomous snakes. And in the midst of their fits and convulsions and fevers, And their systems were shutting down. They were full of venom. God instructs Moses to make a serpent out of bronze so that all who would look on it would be healed. And that's what he does. Why do you think he did that? I think it's because God knew that the venom of self-destruction, of bitterness, of violence in their souls was even more dangerous than the venom in their veins. And God said, I will save you not only from the venom in your veins, but the venom in your souls. Your selfishness and your self-absorption that dehumanizes and destroys us from within. And he rescues us from that. And so Jesus says, when you think about that story, think about me as the one who's being lifted up. People who looked at the serpent knew they were dying. So to be a Christian means it's not good enough to say, I'm generally a good person. I just need God to put a little extra on top. I generally know which direction I'm going. I just need to buzz God into my office every now and then when I need a little advice or a little bit of help. No. The people who looked at the serpent knew they were dying. You must say... I need for you, God, to break through. This is why it's so hard for us. As relatively wealthy, well-resourced Western people, this is not in our DNA. This is not in our national story. This is not in our personal stories. This is not what you're taught when you read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. We are taught to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. As Southern Californians, we are pressured to pretend like everything is great even when it's not. But Jesus says, you'll never find me that way. You might find some version of a shallow best life now, but you will never be truly comforted or truly empowered. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. To say, I'm powerless. This is what our friends in the 12 steps realize on our behalf and teach us all the time. The first step, no matter what the addiction is, is always, I'm powerless. Maybe we could take a lesson. I wonder if you've ever come to that point. Even in the midst of your success or affluence or boredom or fear, to say, I can't do it. And maybe that's the most healthy thing you could ever say. Because when you come to the end of yourself, that might be the beginning of a deeper relationship with God. That healing serpent in the wilderness... Jesus says, is a glimpse. It's a pointer to me as he will go on to be called the good physician who heals all people. He's the one who will be lifted up on the cross as he's lifted up. A picture of love and justice allowing our venom to inflict him. A picture of the resurrection three days later as he's lifted up in glory once and for all. A picture of a foretaste of the new creation being birthed in the midst of the old, conquering the venom of death forever. Now here's the thing. All you have to do is look. He doesn't say it's the strongest. Those aren't those who aren't too sick. Those who can muscle and pull themselves up and crawl to the serpent will be healed. Anyone who just looks. I mean one of the hardest parts of my job as pastor is convincing you that Jesus loves you that much. And one of my jobs the most difficult job as a human being is convincing myself the same. But he's telling us right here, right now, all you need is to look to me. See, some of you want to climb and you spend your whole lives climbing and you're exhausted. Others of you know you can't climb and you're discouraged. And Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Look to me. Believe. Trust me. How are you reborn? You receive it. You receive it once, and then you receive it every day after that. There's a theologian who talks about repentance, turning to God. It's not a one-time thing. He says, I turn to God once, and then I turn to God every minute for the rest of my life. In other words, sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. But you're continually allowing him more and more into your life. And what's the result? You know, I think I went 10 years of studying this passage without realizing and connecting that we actually see Nicodemus again in the Gospel of John. See, here, Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night out of fear. He has some questions, he wants some clarification, he wants to know something, but he doesn't want to risk his salary or his wealth or his status or his social standing or his reputation so he comes at night. But later in John 19 after Jesus is crucified they talk about how they wanted to make sure they took his body down Christ's body down from the cross before sunset because the day of Passover was about to begin and it begins at sunset so we know it was daytime at this point and here's what it says after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because he was afraid, asked Pilate to let him, Pilate was the most powerful person in that area, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds, That's wealth. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. You see, the result is that previously Nicodemus came alone. He was isolated, but now he's with his friend Joseph part of the Christian community. Previously, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he was afraid. But now he's in broad daylight. Before, he couldn't be seen associated with Jesus. Now he's walking to the most powerful person in the land and demanding that he gets as close to Jesus as he possibly can. Because new birth leads to new vision, to new courage, to new direction and new meaning, to a new priority In your life, he sees Jesus as a king, and that's more real to him than his money. So he did not mind investing great amounts of money. More real to him than his safety. More real to him than his status or opinion. So, how do you know you've been reborn? I think Jesus gives us this clue in verse 8 The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. On one hand, when he wants to describe what it's like to be reborn, he says it's like being blown about by a great wind. It will rearrange the hairs on your head. It will dishevel your clothing. It will change things in your life. See, some of us are Christians. You've been baptized, but not a hair on your head has been rearranged. How do you explain that? I say that with no guilt and no shame. But as a pastor, I ask, is there a possibility that you're missing out on a great revolution in your life? As Jesus talks about catching the wind, I think about going down to San Diego Harbor. Later today, I'll, weather willing, I'll hopefully go down and ride my bike by the harbor. And I always stop and I watch the sailboats, especially on a nice breezy day. The wind starts picking up around 3 p.m. And you see the sailboats begin to put up their sail. The sailboat's job is not to create the wind. It's to put up its sail and catch the wind that's already there. And because of that, it moves in a direction. What does it look like for you to put up your sail in your life? What are the practices you could do today to move toward him? to live courageously following him today. Because as we do, we enter into the joy of that great, loving, life-giving, creative dance. You find out who you were created to become. And this world more and more reflects the vision, the values, the meaning of God's coming kingdom. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do pray that as you convinced Nicodemus of your great, loving, life-giving presence that led to his rebirth, that led to his courage and sacrificially pouring himself out, however we find ourselves this morning, believing or unbelieving or somewhere in between, break through with that life of the trinity break through with that life that is reborn and made new where we need to be challenged empowered and encouraged would you do those things Where we need to be woken up would you rouse us to your great life and as you love us help us to love one another We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, we're going to continue with our time of offering. And on one hand, offering is an act of worship. As we say, all that we have is a gift from God. So we give freely, sacrificially, generously, joyfully back to God from what God has already given us. It's also an act of mission because everything we give goes to fund this church's mission to renew our neighborhood, our city, and our world. So if you choose to participate, you could do so online just hitting the Give button at the top of RenewSandiego.org. It's all encrypted and secure and tax deductible and all that good stuff. Offering goes far beyond our resources and our finances. You think about your entire life who are your neighbors? Who's in your family? Who's in your workplace? What abilities or talents or passions or gifts do you have? And what does it look like to offer all of that as a gift to this world? As we do, we commit our offering to God. If you're following along, we're on page six as we pray. Oh God, our offerings proclaim that work and worship are one, that life is undivided. Use these gifts for your church's ministries of reconciliation, service, and ministry. Amen.